I'm Amir Tibon, and you're listening to Haaretz Weekly. With me in studio... Alison Kaplan-Summer. Hi, Alison. Hey, Amir. How are you doing? Great to be back. We had an end-of-summer break, and uh, today, jumping right into the biggest issue on the agenda... The Iran deal. And we have two great guests to discuss what's going on. We don't know yet. Will there be a deal? What will exactly be included in it? When will it be? How bad will it be for Israel? Or maybe the alternative is worse. Joining us in studio to discuss this, Mark Dubowitz, the CEO of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy, the Washington-based think tank, and I think one of the most prominent voices today fighting against the option of this uh, renewed emerging deal. Hi, Mark. Hi, Amir. Great to be here. And joining us online, Chuck Freilich, a former Deputy National Security Advisor in Israel and author of Israeli National Security, A New Strategy for an Era of Change. And the forthcoming Israel and the Cyber Threat, How the Startup Nation Became a Global Superpower. Hi, Chuck. Hi. Good to be with you. Chuck, starting with you, you wrote an article for Haaretz last week um, with the headline, Ignore Bibi's Bluster, Israel Must Back Biden on Iran Deal. Basically making the argument that Israel will not be able to take on Iran alone and that the current uh, agreement that maybe will emerge out of the negotiations is the better of all the available options. Uh, share with the listeners a bit um, what led you to write this article. Well, actually, I think I've written tens of op-eds uh, since the nuclear deal was signed in 2015. Actually, since the negotiations began in 2012, in which I've made the case that a deal for all of its faults, and the deal does have important faults, it's the best of the bad options. Now, it's not as if I do not fully share uh, people's concerns about Iran. Uh, Mark will state his position in a minute. In the end, we both agree completely on the objective, on the dangers. Iran cannot be allowed to go nuclear. But I spent many years in the government in Israel. And one of the things that I learned is to be a pragmatist. What can actually be achieved? The argument that some better, longer and better deal can be achieved, I'm sorry, that's just not on the table. The question is the old deal or no deal. And in life, you have to weigh your options in terms of the realistic ones. What, can, what realistic options do you face? And if you go through them, and if you want, in a minute, I'll be happy to do so. One by one, just through a process of elimination, you find that, as I said, a renewed deal for all of its faults is the best of the bad options. Mark, you've been speaking out a lot uh, as these negotiations progress and writing. Uh, Chuck said the dozens uh, of uh, articles. I think you've written probably just as much. A warning uh, about what you see emerging from Vienna. Um, what are you uh, most worried about um, when you see these talks? Right now, they, you know, as we record this on Monday at the Haaretz headquarters in Tel Aviv, there seems to be a bit of a... stalemate, um, but uh, you believe that at some point we will get over it and um, they will move forward. Look, I, I agree with Chuck um, that longer and stronger would be better, but I disagree with him that that's unrealistic. In fact, it's the very policy that the Biden administration, Joe Biden himself, he's Secretary of State Tony Blinken, said our Iran policy is longer and stronger in recognition of the fatal flaws of the original 2015 policy. Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And, and the most fatal of all the flaws is that this is a program um, that, is, that is moving ahead, and this is an agreement that, that 
postpones but doesn't ultimately permanently cut off Iran's pathways to nuclear weapons. So we get to 2030 with a regime in Iran with a trillion dollars in sanctions relief, an industrial-sized nuclear program with near-zero nuclear breakout, powered by advanced centrifuges, which are much easier to hide and therefore facilitate an easier clandestine sneak out, and a regime that is a much more dangerous target. And at that point, the United States or Israel are going to have to confront this program militarily, and the consequences of that war will be much more disastrous for both countries. A step back before I also let Chuck uh, uh, present his uh, case. Do you think we're going to see a deal in the coming days or weeks? Uh, because we did hear the head of Mossad here in Israel, uh, David uh, Dedi Barnea, um, a few, I think it was less than two weeks ago, say that it's basically immediate, that it will come within days. There seems to have been a bit of a cooling off uh, in the Israeli approach, at least when it comes to the date in which an agreement could be signed. And yeah. just to jump in, in the news, most of them are saying uh, in the analyses based on conversations with officials that Israel has almost come to terms with the fact that the deal is going to happen and now it's just an issue of are we going to try to delay it until after the midterms, et cetera? You know, a question of can we stretch this out and, uh, and have it happen later rather than sooner? Yeah, I agree with Dadi's analysis that there's 100% likelihood that there's going to be a deal. Unless the supreme leader thinks to himself, this deal is so good for Iran, this must be an American trap, and therefore I'm not going to take the deal. But otherwise, the deal is coming in the coming weeks, maybe months. They may wait until after the midterm. And the fundamental reason for that is the Biden administration is desperate for a deal. The Iranians know that. They're pressing their advantage to get more and more concessions. And they're asking for the outrageous on concessions. And ultimately, they'll settle for the egregious. And Chuck, when, when you hear a longer and stronger agreement, you basically look at it as what is a fantasy, as something that cannot be achieved? It was the Biden administration's policy. That's what they campaigned on. I always thought it was a fallacious argument because Iran had no reason from their perspective, they had no reason to agree to a longer and stronger or a longer and better deal because anything that is longer and uh, strong, longer and stronger from an American perspective or an Israeli perspective is by definition worse for Iran. Now, why would Iran agree to that when the party that withdrew from the agreement was the United States uh, with no justification. No one, including the CIA, argued at the time that Iran was in violation of the agreement. They were not. The results of the withdrawal have been nothing short of catastrophic. You're, you're, uh, refer you're, referring, to, uh, you're referring to President Trump's decision in May 2018, which at the time was encouraged and uh, supported by uh, then Prime Minister Netanyahu. And I think it has proven to be a catastrophic decision, both by... Trump and Netanyahu. Uh, in 2018, when this happened, Iran had 300 kilos of enriched uranium at the 3.67 level, uh, which is the civil usage level. Uh, today, they have not 300 kilos, but 3,809.3 kilos. At the time, they were 12 months away from fissile material for a first bomb. Today, there may be days away from having enough for the first two bombs, and they can have five in six months. So that was really a historically misguided agreement uh, or uh, move on their part. And in the meantime, longer and stronger is just not on the table. Iran's not going to do it. 
Mark, I'm really interested in what you have to say about uh, Chuck's argument there. Well, first of all, longer and stronger is on the table because the Iranians need something desperately from the United States, and that is they need meaningful U.S. sanctions relief. And Chuck remembers that after 2015, many people predicted that there would be a gold rush of billions of dollars of investment flowing into Iran. It didn't happen, and that is because the United States retains primary sanctions, which prohibit U.S. persons from doing business with Iran and U.S. financial institutions from transacting with Iranian banks. And also, banks around the world can't use the U.S. dollar. So the Iranians learned a very valuable lesson in 2015, 2016, and that is that without primary sanctions relief from the United States, they would not get this massive gold rush that they, they sought. So the United States has enormous leverage today to go to them and say, we want longer and stronger. You want hundreds of billions of dollars of investment to flow into your country to save your economy and save your regime. Let's negotiate longer and stronger. And that's exactly what the Biden administration intended to do and promised to do. The second thing I would say to Chuck is that the timeline doesn't lie. And facts are stubborn things. The reality is, is that the Iranians took incremental nuclear steps after May 2018 and Trump's withdrawal. It was when Biden was elected on the promise to end maximum pressure and move to maximum deference that Iran took its most egregious and dangerous nuclear steps, including enriching to 20 percent and 60 percent in uranium uh, metal enrichment and the installation of, of hundreds of advanced centrifuges. So Chuck's interpretation is that withdrawal led to nuclear escalation. My interpretation is that the end of maximum pressure led to nuclear escalation. And the nuclear timeline, I think, vindicates my interpretation. Can I just ask both of you about the one factor that wasn't there in 2015 that is very uh, dominant now, and that's the conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine, and how that makes the calculation, I think, on all sides, on the Iran side, on the U.S. side, and on the Israeli side, different when it comes to weighing whether or not to enter in this deal or to support this deal or how vigorously to oppose this deal? Well, Chuck's told you about the, uh, in great detail, and he knows the figures better than I do, um, about the uh, Iran's enriched uranium stockpiles and how they grew uh, after maximum pressure was abandoned. Well, the interesting thing is under this deal, like under the 2015 agreement, the enriched uranium is going to be transferred, do you know where, Allison? Where? To Vladimir Putin. Uh-oh. So Vladimir Putin is going to be sitting there with Iran's enriched uranium. He will have leverage over the United States and the West. And at any time he could say, look, you want to continue sanctioning me over Ukraine? You want to continue trying to undermine my economy? I'm just going to transfer this enriched uranium back to the Iranians, and they will proceed accordingly. So we are giving a significant point of leverage to uh, the butcher of Kiev as part of this nuclear agreement. Chuck? Well, I agree that it does give the Russians more uh, leverage, but that's another reason for not having left the agreement to begin with. But I think we're getting away from the real issue, which is what are the alternatives here? And I alluded it to it before. Uh, first of all, I think, well, I hope Mark is right, but I'm not sure he is, that Iran is so desperate for sanctions relief. They seem to have found alternatives uh, partly growing in, uh, economic involvement by China, uh, growing involvement of Russia. They've built their what they call their resistance economy. And of course, oil prices have gone way up so that money is pouring into Iranian coffers as it is. Sanctions, well, had Trump's maximum pressure continued for another four or eight years, they might have achieved the, the result that we hope. Uh, the fact is there is really no precedent 
of any country making major changes to its national policies as a result of sanctions. And just to give you one example or two examples, North Korea and Cuba have both been under really severe sanctions ever since the 1950s, and they're just about to make the concessions any day now. So sanctions don't do it. They are an important uh, policy tool. It would be great if we knew how to bring about regime change in Iran. I'm all for it, but nobody's known how to do it since uh, the Iranian revolution in 1979. The sabotage operations attributed to Israel and otherwise have achieved short delays each time, months, maybe a little bit more than months. I'm all for it. It's important. But again, it's a delay. It's not more than that. And military action, well, uh, Israel has been trying to get the U.S. to not even to take military action, to, but to present a credible military threat for five presidencies now, starting with uh, Clinton. And five presidents consecutively have refused to do so. The only partial exception was, Biden, was Obama for a brief window. The U.S. is not going to go the military route, let's be realistic. And at least for the coming years, Israel doesn't have the capability of doing anything significant in any event. As a matter of fact, neither Israel nor the United States, a global superpower, has a military solution anymore because the Iranians have the capability to reconstitute uh, probably in two, three years. And of course, at great uh, cost to us because we'll be hit massively in response and maybe American interest as well. And so I think what I said in the beginning, if you look at the options and through a simple process of el elimination, you come to the conclusion that with all of its faults, the deal is the best of the bad options. Mark, do you agree with that analysis regarding the military option? Look, there's so much to unpack in what Chuck said. Uh, unfortunately, there's there's quite a lot of it that's wrong. The first is is that you know the United States has used military force against Iran. President Trump killed Qasem Soleimani, the head of Iran Revolutionary Guards Quds yeah, Force. But, but that doesn't impact the nuclear well, program. Actually, it did because for a year after that, from the time that Soleimani was killed until Biden's election, Iran stopped escalating its nuclear program. It's remarkable, right? For for a solid almost 12 months, as a result of Soleimani's killing, the Iranian system was rattled, and they thought President Trump was going to use military force against the program and against the Revolutionary Guards, and they stopped escalating the nuclear program, which demonstrates- yeah, It was also the year of COVID, and they were hit very hard. Maybe that also had an impact. Uh, listen, there, there may be a lot of things, but the fact of the matter is, is if you look at revolutionary history since 1979, when the Iranians push forward and they feel American mush, they continue pushing. When they feel American steel, they back up because they know that the United States is the only power in the world that can not only get rid of the nuclear program significantly, but can get rid of their regime. So the I agree with Chuck, credible threat of military force, especially from the United States, is essential. But we have evidence of, of it actually working. And there, the strike was not against the nuclear program, but against Iran's most famous, hardened, and dangerous battlefield commander. So the second thing I'd like to address with, with Chuck's argument is, look, Chuck, you're right, but, but the option that you're recommending gives Iran patient pathways to nuclear weapons, to intercontinental ballistic missiles, to a trillion-dollar economy hardened against our ability to use sanctions in the future. And ultimately, when these restrictions sunset and expire, Iran ends up with this massive nuclear program with multiple enrichment facilities spread across the country, 
buried deep underground, hardened against our ability to take military action in the future. So as difficult as military action will be today, and I don't want to downplay that, it's going to be much more difficult in eight years' time. But you know, Mark, when I listen to what you describe, it sounds very scary. But when I listen to what Chuck described about today, that sounds a bit scarier because he's talking about a situation that exists right now in which they are so close to break out. And you tell me in 2030, there will be a terrible situation if this deal is signed. At least from an Israeli perspective, I can understand the argument to say, you know what, if we can postpone this to 2030 and not go to war tomorrow morning, maybe I'll take it. Look, I, I get that. And no one wants to go to war tomorrow or in 2030. But the question is, is can you accomplish your objective, which is to permanently cut off Iran from developing nuclear weapons? Because Chuck and I agree, if they do, it's a game changer for the United States. It's a game changer for Israel. And the question is not a choice between good and bad options. It's the choice between bad and worse options. And the worst option of all is to take... On, on that, you gentlemen seem to agree. Yeah, <laughs> choice between bad options here. 100%. But, but the worst option is... You to... just disagree on what's bad and what's worse. Well, that may be right. I mean, look, right now, Iran is weak economically, weak politically. There's been multiple protests against this regime. This regime is hated by its own people. They've lost their most important battlefield commander. They've lost their most important military nuclear scientist when the Mossad took out Fakhrizadeh. They've got a small number of nuclear facilities, and Israel absolutely has a military option right now. I mean, I've, I've had numerous conversations with many people in the IDF and in the intelligence community. It's clear Israel has, has a military option today. They have a unilateral strike option today. And the people that are actually defending the deal in the Israeli system are not defending the deal because they think it's a good deal. They want two or three more years to... To prepare an option. To, well, to, to make that option even more effective so that in 2025, 2026, they believe that strike option will be more effective than it is today. I, I, I think there's some value in that argument, and I think that's where we should be having our debate is, is it better to wait three years and have a better option against a program which will still be limited, or is it better to kick the can down the road in the hope that in 2030, everything will be better and we won't have to go to war against a much more dangerous regime with a massive nuclear program. And by the way, at that point, potentially ICBMs that could hold American cities hostage, not just Tel Aviv. Chuck, I think in the past when you were a guest on our podcast, we discussed what happens if Israel does take out a strike against Iran's nuclear program. Um, what would be the immediate repercussions? It was an interesting debate at the time. It's even more interesting to ask that question today. Well, first of all, I, I think it's not just a hypothetical question. Uh, it's just not a realistic one because, well, I don't know who Mark is talking to, and uh, I wish I was speaking to those people. It sounds to me like uh, maybe they're smoking something really good because <laughs> I don't know any military experts who believe that Israel has an option, a capability to do something significant today. What do you define as significant? I know. Can we cause a few months delay? Yes. But as I said before, no one, including the United States, and I'm sorry, Mark, I, I don't see where, you, you know, how you can present a different case. No one can destroy the program militarily anymore. The Iranians have the know-how and they have, uh, yeah, they lost Soleimani, they lost Fakharizadeh. They've got a lot of really, really talented people. And if we destroy it, let's say hypothetically, a 100% effective military strike, they can rebuild it. And I think uh, some people say, well, they can do it in a year. I think that's really uh, 
and underestimation, and others say four or five. I think that's probably an overestimation. It'll take them two or three years. And what's going to happen in the meantime? And by the way, if and when we reach the crunch and Iran is literally about to cross the threshold, I think Israel has no choice but to go military. I also think, by the way, when that moment comes, we will probably stand alone. But all we get again is a very limited period of time. And what are the consequences going to be? Well, first of all, Iran itself today, and this wasn't a situation four years ago, five years ago, has a significant uh, ballistic missile capability, but they also have a drone capability. They've got a cruise missile capability that they didn't have at the time. Much more importantly is Hezbollah with something like 150,000 rockets, which is a, a simply unfathomable number it's, I'll overstate the case a little bit, it's almost as if every home in the state of Israel is targeted. Our home front, our civilian population is going to be hit in a way that we have never been hit in the history of the conflict. Hamas may join as well, PIJ for some more fun. And this thing could um, further escalate to the Iranians in Syria, to Syria itself. And it could become a regional war, even though I think it probably won't, but it could. Yeah, but Chuck, you're not taking on the central point of my argument, which is not now, 2030. I mean, explain to me the scenario in 2030 that looks better than the scenario you've just described, because I'm explaining the opposite. I'm saying at that point, under the agreement, with full compliance under the agreement, all of the restrictions go away. Iran can build multiple enrichment facilities, multiple plutonium reactors, can bury them underground, can harden them in concrete, can build up a much more formidable conventional and ballistic military uh, and missile program, can build up an ICBM program, can immunize it, its economy against our ability to use sanctions in the future. And Israel at that point or the United States is going to have to act. And my argument is it's going to be much worse in 2030 unless... Inshallah, we get lucky and somehow the regime reforms, moderates, the Iranian people take down the regime, something happens. But I'm not willing to bet the House and certainly not bet the security of the state of Israel and the United States on something better happening in eight years' time. So take on that argument. How does it look better in 2030 to you? Well, I'm not sure that it does, Mark. And uh, we're in a abysmal situation. Now, Israel has faced many abysmal situations in the past. And playing for time has always been a fundamental part of Israel's national security strategy. It's usually worked in the past, not always. Sometimes we had to go to war. Uh, I don't know that things will be better. There may be a different president. There may not be Ukraine uh, and uh, Russia and Ukraine and uh, American interests vis-a-vis -vis China, which were today the primary focus of American foreign policy. Maybe a president will be freer at the time to take on Iran. And maybe we'll have to consider all sorts of options that until now have been totally unimaginable if Iran actually goes nuclear at the time. And it's not clear that they will. The fact is Iran could have crossed the threshold years ago if they wanted to. By 2010, probably earlier, and they haven't because of international pressure. Now, the assumption is that when the agreement expires in 2030, oh, well, that's it. They can go and do whatever they want. Well, no. First of all, they signed an agreement uh, which says that they will never develop nuclear weapons. Okay, we don't trust them. 
there will be inspections in perpetuity. And the, the real question will then be, what does the United States and the international community do in 2030? I don't think the American president, whoever it is, is going to sit back and say, oh, bring it on, Iranians. There will be massive American pressure at the time. I think that the real focus of what we should be doing today is instead of arguing what I think are points of secondary importance, all the critiques of the deal are true. They're secondary. What we should really be trying to do is reach an agreement with the United States that actually the agreement never expires. And the US has to reach a similar agreement with the relevant European powers. And that in 2029 or December 2029, the US comes to the Iranians and say, well, you know, we thought about this uh, once again. Sorry, guys, it doesn't expire. I don't know if we can still do that. It would have been easier to do it a few years ago before the U.S. withdrew. But I don't see a better way at this point. So I want to interject here, although I like the idea of you guys just talking to each other and Ellison and I could go to the beach. It's a nice day outside. <laughs> um, and, and I do want to ask both of you, there is a sense here in Israel that uh, one of the complicating factors here is that the United States no longer wants to be involved in any kind of fighting in the Middle East, except for targeted strikes, taking down Soleimani, killing the leader of ISIS, things like that. But Israelis don't believe that the United States, after the adventures in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and after seeing what happened in the Arab Spring, that there was no American military involvement, but the whole idea of promoting democracy in this region and American interests and values has uh, collapsed. Um, would be willing to take that kind of big decision that both of you in different parts of your uh, argument uh, alluded to, which is, you know, the possibility of an American uh, attack. And I would love when you respond, especially you, Mark, since you're a creature of the Beltway, to talk about how the politics in the United States figures into this and how this has become such a partisan issue. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. The Israelis should not count on the United States. I'm arguing for an Israeli policy, a unilateral policy. In the United States, we are concerned today about China and Russia and then everything else that is consuming us domestically. So there is no way a U.S. president, Democrat or Republican, is going to lead the way in a maximum pressure campaign against the Islamic Republic. And I think multiple presidents have said Iran will not get a nuclear weapon on my watch. Joe Biden said the same thing, which essentially is, Amir, it's a... It's a uh, a different version of what you call, you know, or, the, or your strategy of kick the can down the road. They want to kick the can down to the next president. So this is a policy that the state of Israel has to lead. And I would call it the Reagan policy. It's the policy that Ronald Reagan led against the Soviet Union. It's using all instruments of Israeli national power to severely constrain, severely weaken and deter the Islamic Republic. Because, by the way, the Islamic Republic is not the Soviet Union. Israel is not the United States. But Israel has shown and demonstrated incredible capability in penetrating the Iranian security establishment, in taking out key battlefield commanders and scientists and drone operators and missile developers, have gotten so inside the heads of the regime. But, but it hasn't shown the ability, and I think this is what Chuck is arguing, to dismantle this program. But again, I, I, no one's going to dismantle this program. The, the best we can do is set it back and set it back repeatedly and mow the grass, as you Israelis call it, right? Now, when, when Israelis have taken preemptive strikes 
against Iran's against Iraq's nuclear program in 81 against Syria's nuclear program in 2007 against the Egyptians and Syrians in 67 they were successful when they sat back and got complacent and fell into a concepcia where they believed that time was on their side you got the 1973 Yom Kippur war right so i i think Israel cannot afford to wait can't afford to kick the can down the road can't afford to get to 2030 and hope per chalk that the the next U.S. administration is going to go to the Iranians, begging them for longer and stronger at the point at which the Iranians have every card to play because they've got, as I've described, trillion-dollar economy, industrial-sized nuclear program, and probably ICBMs to hold American cities hostage. Israel has to lead the way. The Mossad has to do what the CIA did under Reagan. You know, Dadi has to do what uh, what Reagan CIA director Bill Casey did at that time, which is to mobilize all national power in in this country and and work diplomatically militarily through cyber covert action economic pressure to continue to severely weaken constrain and deter this regime and maybe like Reagan get lucky that a few years later uh, after Reagan put in place the maximum pressure campaign the Soviet Union collapsed that may happen it may not happen but in the meantime severely weaken deter and constrain this brutal regime and do it without a belief that the United States is going to be by your side. Chuck, how do you see the impact of the overall American approach and this fatigue of wars in the region uh, through the eyes of someone who worked for many years in the uh, national security arena and specifically you know, the U.S.-Israel relationship? Well, I think it is true that the U.S. Uh, is fed up with the Middle East and has... Largely, not completely, but has largely turned uh, elsewhere. But we don't know what the situation will be eight years from now. The U.S. recovered from uh, Viet- from Vietnam, uh, from other things that didn't go well or from other failures, and it will get over its uh, Middle East fatigue eventually. Uh, one of the things that we should be doing to help uh, the U.S. overcome it is not play around with uh, secondary issues. We should act as an ally and be supportive of our overwhelmingly number one uh, supreme ally, the United States. We especially have to avoid the ongoing uh, tension with the Democratic side. There's good relations with the Republicans. We have to have an outstanding relationship with both sides. That requires changes in Israeli policies in a whole variety of areas, whether it's Iran, whether it's on the Palestinian issue, et cetera. I think that whoever the American president is, he or she will, they won't just, uh, as I said before, uh, raise their arms and surrender and say the, the Iranians can do whatever they want. I think what Israel has to do is stage one is we're going to have to ramp up the pressure uh, on the U.S. and through the U.S., the rest of the international community, by threatening military action. And I think the, the, the threat of it and the consequences of doing it, and what I think are actually greatly overstated fears that this will become a regional conflagration, the objective here isn't to force the U.S. into war or anyone else. It's to force them into taking, finally taking effective diplomatic and economic action, you know, cyber action, whatever. But um, but you think what, that we need, think we need more time it, to get to that point? Well, first of all, let's gain eight years. By Israeli standards, that's great. It's not outstanding, but, it's, but it is very good. 
And I think that Mark's uh, comparison to Iraq or Syria, uh, Iran is a totally different case. To, it's nice to think about the wonderful good old days when we could do all sorts of remarkable things and in Tebe and all sorts of other occasions. This is different. Iran has dispersed the program. It's hardened the program. As I said, I don't want to keep repeating myself, even the United States cannot destroy the program today. It can at best get a temporary postponement. Now, I don't want to wait either. I don't want to just sit back and hope that things will be better. From everything, all the analysts you read, and by the way, both former prime ministers Barack and Olmert uh, each came out with separate op-eds a few months ago in which they both said explicitly that Israel does not have the capability to do anything significant today. And Bennett said that Netanyahu, here you can say is politically charged, he was a successor. Bennett said that Netanyahu simply um, dropped the ball. So maybe we need time to develop an effective, a more effective capability, but it's unlikely that anyone can end this thing militarily. Chuck, I'm really kind of interested to get inside the room uh, when you've spoken to Israeli officials who are so opposed to this, who feel like they have to fight it for, uh, for all it's worth. What do they say to you and what do you say to them? Well, I think almost all of the arguments are the same ones that were raised in 2015. Uh, yes, the situation on the ground has changed and has become in some ways worse. But the basic arguments are the same that were there at the time. One is the so-called sunset, that the thing does expire in eight years. And there's no doubt that it would have been much better if the entire agreement was enforced in perpetuity. That's not the case. The second argument is that it does not address Iran's ballistic and other missile capabilities or regional expansionism. And that's absolutely true. I can tell you from personal experience, this is going back uh, 15 years or more when I was in the government, it was actually Israel which, at the time, which was advocating that we separate the nuclear and other issues because the nuclear one is potentially existential. And so the idea was let's put that to bed and then we'll worry about everything else. And the third argument is that it leaves Iran with a uh, huge nuclear infrastructure and the ability to break out in almost no time when the agreement expires. That, well, as I said before, the agreement says that they will never have a program, but they're in the situation that we were afraid they'd be in in 2030 already today. They have a massive infrastructure and they can break out very soon. My last question to uh, to Mark is maybe a little bit, you know, on a, on a personal nature. You've been around now for a while, really crusading against this deal. You originally come from the business sector. This is a personal passion, a personal crusade. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what drives you. And uh, for those of us who follow closely, um, you've had some scary moments in the past few years. The Iranians have basically openly declared that you're a target for them. And uh, more recently, you've been sanctioned by uh, by Russia. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience of the past few years and what drives you to continue to uh, to push this hard uh, despite what you're going through? Yeah, no, listen, it's it's uh, it's been an honor uh, to spend 20 years uh, working against these brutal regimes. As you said, I, I came from venture capital and high tech and uh, made a decision after 9-11 to move to Washington 
and join a think tank, a policy institute, and, and really work on these issues. And you know, a huge amount of respect for for the people on both sides of this debate, for the diplomats and the policymakers who are dealing with really a, a, a tremendously difficult problem because the Islamic regime is brutal, it's conspiratorial, it's genocidal, it's anti-Semitic. Um, and all of that is demonstrated in their obsession with, with my organization, FDD, and with me and the people that they've sanctioned, people who they think are, are at the vanguard of leading efforts to bring down their regime. So it's a brutal regime that's been repressing its own people and has been uh, you know, aggressively threatening and killing and maiming um, innocents around the world. And so you know, we have to figure out a way to, to, to ultimately help the Iranian people bring down this regime. But we... Time is not always on our side. I mean, the Taliban had a famous expression in Afghanistan, you wear the watches, Americans, and we have the time. And so this notion, this Western notion, that if we have more time, somehow that's going to help us solve this problem, is often wrong. Right now, we have a weakened regime, and we have the capabilities to use all instruments of power against this regime, including supporting the Iranian people in their efforts to bring down this regime. So yeah, Allison, I do take it personally because they threaten me and they threaten my colleagues. But also as an American, I, I care deeply about getting rid of a regime that, that yells death to America and death to Israel daily and is ideologically committed to continued repression and aggression. Guys, this was a fascinating conversation. And we invite the listeners who want to read more about this issue Uh, to go to haaretz.com, look for our coverage, look for uh, Mark's and Chuck's contributions on our website as well. And uh, that's it for today's episode. Thank you, Alison. And thank you, Amir. And thanks to our producer, Maya Benissan. And our editor, Shani Aviram. Our political podcast, Election Overdose, will be back again this weekend. And until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>